0: You know, thinking about that drama, thinking about Shannon, the mom, feeling overwhelmed, lost, feeling unsure, desperately seeking God's presence and intervention and a and a clear path through the adversity. I think we've all been there at some point in our lives. I know that I have. I um, I remember about 25 years ago, I was attending a Bible college in upstate New York in a remote part of the Adirondack Mountains, and um, I was going through some stuff in my life at that time, some normal stuff for a 20-ish year old, you know, like uh, what's my life going to count for? Uh, God, what, what do you want me to do? Uh, some direction things concerning my life and I was invited to join some men from this Bible college and a few other students who were going to go on a weekend of like hiking and, and fishing and camping in a remote part of the mountains and so I thought it 'd be a great time to get alone and really spend some time praying now, I was kind of new to praying at this point in my life. I mean, I had done it you know thank you lord for this food and uh... you know god thank you for being with me and and that kind of thing but now you know praying about like real consequential things in my life and i thought it'd be a great time to get alone and pray through some of these things so we get there and we hike about three miles down this path where we hit our our campsite there and at that time i didn't have much experience being in the woods or hiking or camping or fishing And uh, so, But I was a college student, which means that I knew everything, and I just knew that I wasn't going to need to be burdened and weighed down by things like a warm sleeping bag, and a map, and a compass, and a flashlight, so I was very ill-prepared, and so we spent a very cold night, I was shivering, somehow everybody else was fine, but I was shivering, of course I didn't tell anybody that in the morning, but... So the next day, uh, we're going to spend the time fishing, and there are these beautiful little ponds dotted all around the Adirondacks, at least in that part, and a lot of these ponds held trout, so my plan was I'm going to go and just get on one of these ponds and just fish and uh, have a great time, get some solitude, not much of that in a college dorm, so it was great, I had this whole pond to myself, beautiful scene. You know, it was late fall, so most of the leaves are down, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful day. I was just able to breathe deeply, and so after a while of sitting there on the bank fishing, I decided I'm going to try to do something that I heard about recently, and it was called a prayer walk, okay? Now, a prayer walk is praying while you're walking, so don't let the name fool you, okay? <laughs> and... I had never done anything like this before, and, you know, I was feeling a little silly at first, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this. It's such a beautiful day. I'd love to just just get up and, and walk around. So I'm doing that, and uh, it really, like, fit well. I really was getting into it, and I, I didn't know how it would work for me, but you know when you try on, like, a piece of clothing, it's just perfect, or, or like a glove or something, it just fits perfectly. Yeah, it was like that. And so, and so I'm walking along, and I'm praying through some of these direction things, and all of a sudden, I stop. I'm looking around, nothing looks familiar. I'm in this gully that I hadn't been in before, and I'm looking around, I look at my feet, no path. I look behind me, no path, and I was getting a little nervous. I'm like, God, I'm out here talking to you. You know, like, what gives here? What is this all about? What just happened? here and so for the first time in my life I was lost in the woods. I did exactly what I should not have done. Again I knew everything and so I thought well I have an idea of where I must have gotten off the path so I am just going to turn around and head in that direction and I will intersect the path soon enough and I will be okay. And there was a, when I was fishing, there was a mountain scene that I saw right across from me. It was just gorgeous. And I thought, I'd been looking at it all day, so I thought, you know, if I could just get that mountain in view, then I'd be able to orient myself and pretty easily get back to where I need to be. Well, the problem is, there was a fog settling in on the tops of the trees, and I could not see That mountain at all, or any other mountain. I couldn't tell, you know, where the sun was or anything like that. Not that I would have known what to do, even if I did (laughs) have the sun in view. But the fog is setting in. It's getting dark. It's cold. It's raining. I don't have a jacket. I'm starting to shiver. My heart rate's up a little bit because I'm just scared. And for the first time in my life, I am lost in the woods. Now, I'm going to come back to this story later, but I'll give you a spoiler alert. I live, okay? <laughs> and you know, the truth is, I have felt lost in the woods many times in my life. I can remember as a young man when I'm thinking through my career path, right? And I'm, and, uh, I, I'm just asking God, like, God, what is my life about? What do you want me to do? What do you have in store For me, is this it, you know, that job I was doing at the time? Is this it? Is this what I'm going to be doing until I'm in my 60s? God, do you hear me? I have felt lost in the woods as a husband. Man, I can remember so vividly that first year. I've been married almost 20 years now. But that first year of my marriage, feeling completely in over my head, right? Like I remember feeling this. like I was an uninitiated man trying to figure out how to handle my wife's heart. And I had no idea. And I, um, it's like, God, the fog is setting in and I'm—you know I'm getting scared because I don't know what to do. And that's a scary place for a man to be. I don't know how to be the man she needs me to be. God, do you hear me? Are you there? I remember being lost in the woods as a father. And this is only going back like to last week. And... <laughs> You know, something comes up and it's like, you did what? God, what do I do with this? How do I shepherd the hearts of my children? How do I initiate my boys in their path, and the masculine journey, their masculine journey, when I'm the one who feels like I need to be initiated? God, are you there? Do you see me? I have felt lost in the woods financially at times in my life. Lord, why is there so much month left at the end of the money? And I'm, sure, and I'm sure that there's not a person in this room today who can't relate to this feeling of being lost in the woods at some point in your life. You know, God's chosen people, the Jews, had a lot of lost-in-the-woods moments throughout the centuries in the Old Testament. So what do I mean by lost in the woods? Lost in the woods could mean literally lost in the woods, like my story. But it's also a great metaphor describing those seasons of life where God seems distant. seems distant. He just seems far off, not near like he used to be. Also described by a lack of clarity. Oh man, clarity is so underrated in life. I have come to, in my prayer times now with God, I ask God for clarity every day, and sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, But clarity, so important, also can bring about feelings of aloneness. I am on my own to make life work, and it is all up to me to figure out the way, and there's nobody that's going to help me. I have to do it all myself. And this can lead to anxiety and worry, fear, anger. Those of you who have experienced this before, you know what I'm talking about, with that downward spiral that starts off with those what-if questions. I mean, let me uh, just ask you this uh, question, because Israel had a lot of seasons where this was the case. Have you ever wondered what happened between the Old and the New Testament? You ever wonder what happened in that, that little space? I mean, the nation of Israel has been through a lot by this time, right? Egyptian captivity, decades of wandering in the wilderness and then entering the promised land and there they experience you know, military defeats and victories. They have really great leaders and they also have some perfectly awful ones. And then this whole cycle of resisting God and then disobeying him and then being disciplined by him and then... And then they come to their senses, they repent, and then they come back to God and they say, God, never again, I'll never do this again. You're going to be my God forever. And from this time, it's going to be different. And that, and then, of course, they fall back into sin. And that whole cycle repeating itself, that happens for centuries through the Old Testament, that cycle. But, but they were God's chosen people. And God had made some promises to them about their future and he chose them so that the world would see his glory displayed in the way that he took care of them and the way that he provided for them. Deuteronomy 7 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of Of the earth. And we might be tempted to think, wow, God's special treasure, that must be awesome. And it is awesome, but it also comes with a good deal of responsibility as well, because sometimes being His special treasure meant that when God would discipline them, like a good and loving father does, means that they had to endure some suffering, like famines like military defeats, like being taken off into captivity, which happened multiple times with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. I can only imagine that some of the Jews must have just been at some point like, God, why us all the time? It's us. This reminds me of a great quote from a wonderful classic film, Fiddler on the Roof. Tevia is a Jewish man, and throughout the... Throughout the uh, Film, he's talking to God out loud, kind of like prayer walk. And anyway, so he he says this in the film. It's great. He says, I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you just choose someone else, right? I just love the honesty in that. But the Jews knew of God's promises for their future. It was a savior. It was a deliverer. It was a promised one who would come and set them free, And they are well acquainted with all of these things. These are the kind of things like Messiah and the coming of the Deliverer. They would talk about these things every day as they worked and as they just did their family thing together. They were well acquainted with them. From early on in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the promise of the Deliverer was given. And later on, God institutes a system of sacrifices and all this stuff we read about in the Old Testament, these sacrifices, these ceremonies, the festivals, they point Point forward. They are pictures of what will one day be in the Messiah. They are. They point forward to the coming of the Messiah. That time also, God dwelt in a tabernacle, and tabernacles like a mobile place of worship, where the presence of God dwelt among His people, where His presence would be particularly localized and be wherever. The people were and many of the details of that tabernacle pointed ahead to the coming of Messiah and would find their fulfillment there. Later on the temple is constructed, same thing. Old Testament poets like David, they write of Messiah. Prophets prophesied about the coming of the Messiah and the Jews knew all of these prophecies because it's what they were waiting for. Here are a few of the more famous ones, Isaiah 7. God says, you want a sign? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Also in Isaiah 9, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And Prince of Peace. And then one of the more obscure to us prophets, uh, Micah. God says through Micah, talking about the place where Messiah will come from, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Okay, so his people are waiting for these promises of deliverance to be fulfilled, and they're just kind of, you know, getting up every morning, doing their normal daily life thing, right, just trying to live lives of faithfulness to God and and you zoom out from that, though, and what's the big picture? What's going on in, with the Is- Israel there, the whole nation? They are waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, for that promised one who will come and set them free. And so, when the last words of the last book of the Old Testament are penned, his people are in a posture of waiting. Here we are, God. Do you remember your promises? Remember what you said you would do? We're ready. We're ready. We're waiting. God, are you there? And so what does God do then? Does he just burst on the scene a week later and say, you know, verily, verily, I say unto you, your deliverance is here? No. No, that's not how it plays out. What happened, in fact, was God went silent. God went silent for 400 years. No angel messages, no prophets, no new stuff from God to be written down for four centuries. That is a long time to not hear from God. And you know, by way of comparison, our country, the United States, is not even 250 years old. And we're talking 400 years. So think of it. When you turn the page of your Bible from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, you have just skipped 400 years in that single turn of the page. And in all that time, not a word from God. Now, I can imagine that this period of silence was really hard for God's people. How could it not be? You know, 400 years of being lost in the woods. And the truth is, that uh, they are trying to put a puzzle together. They have a few pieces of the puzzle of what Messiah is going to be like. They're trying to put this puzzle together with no clear image in front of them to guide them. And... Uh, so they just wait for this promise to be fulfilled. But it, again, it's not entirely clear how it's going to happen or when or exactly what it is that, that they're, everybody's supposed to be looking and waiting for. God, when are you going to do this? Have you forgotten about us? God, are you asleep at the wheel? Do you even care anymore? So at this point, Israel is just craving a word from God. And let's be honest who among us can say that we've not been at this place at some point in our spiritual journey? So what I want to do here is just hit the pause button for a moment. All right? Because the nation of Israel, they're not the only people in the history of the world who have ever felt lost in the woods. I think that there are lessons for us here. So let's pause and just ask a few questions. First of all, what do we do When God goes quiet? How do we navigate the silence of God? What do we hold on to when we are lost in the woods? How do we find a clear path through adversity? To help us understand this, I want to offer three misconceptions about the silence of God, okay? Three misconceptions. First misconception is this, that silence means absence. That silence means absence. It goes like this. Since God isn't doing what I want him to do, when and how I want him to do it, then he must not be there anymore, if he ever was, to begin with. Second misconception, silence means apathy. Apathy means like uncaring, unconcerned. So since God isn't doing what I want him to do, right when and how I want him to do it, then he must not care about me anymore, if he ever did. Another misconception, silence means inactivity, inactivity or perceived inactivity. Since God isn't doing what I want him to do, when and how I want him to do it, he must be idle, unengaged and He's just stopped working in and around me. And you know, it's easy to go here when we feel lost in the woods. It's not an intellectual thing. This is like real life stuff. And I'm, I'm speaking to myself here, okay? It is so easy to end up here when we're lost in the woods. We don't set out to end up here, you know? We just kind of do. And it's like I get sick. It's maybe somebody gets sick. This sudden illness That just comes on, and you you think that you're just like serving God, and boom, now you got this on your plate to deal with. Maybe it's a long recovery period or something like that. Like God, what what gives? A marriage that maybe once was strong is now in serious trouble. God, where are you? Loved one passes away suddenly. Maybe laid off at work. A car breaks down. You know, in the middle of January in Minnesota. One of the kids is going off the rails. God, do you see me? Do you hear me? Are you there? And when we agree with anyone or all of these misconceptions, when we buy into this false narrative that God is absent, that he is apathetic or inactive, this is where we start to lose hope. And hope is so important to hold on to, through times of adversity but this is where hope can be lost you know i have to think that jo- that those jews were growing increasingly cynical 400 years without a word from god maybe they were growing a bit impatient i don't know there's no text i can go to to prove that i'm just thinking trying to put myself in their shoes that's probably where i would end up a little impatient When are we going to find out more about the Messiah? God, when are you going to fulfill your promises? Now would be a really good time for me for you to do that. And how are you going to do it? And who's going to let me know when it's happening? Because all the prophets are gone. So while it might have seemed to God's people like he was absent or uncaring or passive, he was in reality none of those things. Let me tell you what was happening during that uh, period, uh, intertestamental period, that 400 years of quiet. Simply put, God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son, Jesus. He was preparing the world. He was allowing the stage to be set and then at just the right time, he would pull back the curtain. Paul writes in Galatians 4, but when the right, Time came. Man, that phrase is so crucial and so important for us to grasp. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. And uh, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Another translation, actually the message paraphrase has it, when the time arrived that was set by God the Father. That's great. And I love this one. Another translation says it this way, in the fullness of time, the fullness of time. So what was God up to during that long silence? He was waiting for the fullness of time. During those 400 years, there are massive power shifts taking place. There are massive changes in power, and power changes almost never take place without bloodshed. And the Jews are there, and they're right in the middle of all of it. So, what was happening during these 400 years? What was going on? Then, uh, how was God allowing time to pass for the setting of the stage? During the 400 silent years, first of all, the Greeks. Greeks come on the scene for a while. Now, I don't know everything that the Greeks did, and I don't want to know, frankly, um, everything that the Greeks did, but I do know this. Scholars have noted that this is critically important because the Greek language is a very exact language. It's not like English, where you can't always say exactly what you mean, you know? And the Greek language is very exact. And so, this influence from Greek culture put into place an exact language where God would be able to communicate what he was intending, this age he was intending to usher in and he would be able to communicate clearly through that language. Also the Romans, the Romans uh, come on the scene about 63 years before Jesus is born and this is significant for many reasons and again I don't know all of the reasons but here are a few. First, the Romans whipped and flogged people, they were pretty brutal. And it was it had been foretold that Messiah was going to endure these whippings and these floggings. In Isaiah 53, it says, "By his stripes, we would be healed." Literally, those stripes across his back from the whips. By his stripes, we would be healed. And and uh, the Romans did this. Second, uh, the Romans practiced crucifixion, and this is really important. I don't. Uh, the Greeks didn't practice crucifixion, to my knowledge. And I know the Jews didn't practice crucifixion, but the Romans did. And it, was, it, was, it had been said that, you know, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, like is, is put to death on the cross because it is such a cruel invention of man as far as a, a way to die is concerned. But it had been foretold that Messiah would be lifted up and would be suspended between heaven and earth and would be pierced. And all of that was fulfilled on the Roman cross. Also, um, the Romans did some phenomenal work with infrastructure, things like roads and bridges and things like this. And, and uh, this came into play later, quite literally paving the way for the spread of the gospel that was to come after uh, Jesus went back to heaven. So the Greeks, the Romans, also the Pharisees and the Sadducees Now, during that 400 years, the Pharisees and Sadducees had become corrupt and not at all what God intended for the leadership of his people to be. And so were they all bad? No, they weren't all bad. I think uh, there are some of them, like we see Nicodemus in in, uh, John 3. I think that there are some of them, you know, who meant well. The problem was that following the law was beginning to replace relationship with God. That's the problem. And they were elevating their own little rules. You know, there were only 613 Old Testament laws. That's it. Only 613, but they would bring thousands more in of their own little traditions and rules and little add-ons and, and you know, sub-rules and all this kind of stuff. And and they ended up holding everybody to that standard. And uh, Jesus came preaching freedom from Uh, the law and he would fulfill all of that stuff but this is important because the religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they are going to become the Messiah's greatest antagonists when he walks the earth. And lastly, the right leadership needed to be in place. Caesar issues a decree that forces Joseph and Mary and Jesus to flee to Bethlehem and then Herod's decree forces them to Egypt. We talked about... That prophecy in, in Micah chapter 5. So, even though God was silent, he was still there, he still cared, and he was active. He was waiting until just the right time. And then, just the right time comes. After 12 or so generations of silence, after four centuries, The pieces are all in place and the stage is finally set and God pulls back the curtain. Some angels appear with some specific messages to some specific people. An angel appears to Elizabeth. You're going to have a son. He is not the promised one, but he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. An angel appears to some shepherds. An angel appears to Mary. He says, don't be afraid, you're going to conceive, you're going to have a child, But this chi- and this child that you will have is the promised one who will rescue Israel and who will set them free. He is the promised one who will reign over Israel and there will be no boundaries to his government and there will be no end to his kingdom. Now what strikes me here and what must have struck them too, we have the benefit of hindsight to interpret all of this stuff, but... What strikes me here is that from God, this was something brand new. This is brand new. Never had he worked like this before. All the Jews knew about the various ways that God had, you know, related to his people throughout history and throughout the, the centuries. But this wasn't that way. This was different. This was brand new. What God was doing here can be summed up in one word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us or God is with us. And this was different because God wasn't just going to raise up a prophet. Here you go. Here's a new prophet for you. Here's a, here's a good king for you. Here's a good high priest for you after a string of bad ones. No, God himself was coming. God himself was going to set his people free. God himself was going to step out of eternity and into time. This is Emmanuel, and it is the greatest statement in the history of everything about God's love for his people and God's presence here in this world. God, is, God had uh, told his people over and over again, I'm with you, and he had shown them and shown them powerfully how you know what, what it can look like when, when I am with you, but now in the most undeniable way imaginable, God was going to show them by becoming a man. By in one of the hymns that we sing at, at Christmas time, Hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's what was happening here. You know, I think that if the all of the Bible the whole thing could be boiled down to one word. If we had to do that, I think that word is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You know, the Old Testament, everything looks ahead to the coming of Messiah. Gospels. Messiah is here. He's with us. He's walking around and he's He's talking. And then the rest of the New Testament, uh, Jesus goes to be with his Father, but his Spirit is here. His presence is here. He had even told his disciples, it's better for you that I leave because if I didn't, I couldn't send the Holy Spirit to you. So his presence is here with us now. And what are we doing now as believers? Waiting for the promise to be fulfilled of the return of Jesus. Okay? That is Emmanuel, where Jesus will take us to be with him. The promise of Christmas... The promise of Christmas is I am never alone and that God is always with me. So I'm lost in the woods. I am alone out there. It is cold. I'm shivering by this point because I'm wet. It is uh, foggy and I don't have a clue where I am. I have no coat and I'm starting to panic you know, and as the panic is setting in, I'm starting to get that faster heart rate, and my mouth's getting dry, and and it's dawning on me that I might be spending the night out here. I wasn't prepared for the night that I spent at a campsite, okay? I'm not prepared to spend the night in the middle of the woods. There are no, you know, leaves left on trees to, to get under and, and find some shelter, and so... I'm really beginning to panic, and then, in, it, it, I mean, it was getting dark, and in the last moments of daylight, I see two little dots about 100, 150 yards away, kind of moving across the scene in front of me horizontally, and I begin moving towards those dots, and it turns out that it was two hikers, they were wearing ponchos because it was raining, and, and uh, I must have looked panicked. Because the way that they came at me, you know, would be like the way that we might approach a child who we could tell had been separated from his parents in a crowd or something, and they're coming to me like, "Are you okay?" You know? And I'm thinking like, I'm a grown man. You know? I'm like, "Yeah, of course I'm okay." I, I, uh, so I, I come bumbling out of this brush, and you know, I'm carrying my fishing rod and my my tackle box. I'm I'm sure I'm looking panicked. And uh, it's like, yeah, I'm, of course I'm okay. I was just taking a shortcut back to the path. I know these woods, you know, like the back of my hand. So, which way's the campsite, left or right, you know? And uh, so, but the f- the the relief that I feel in this moment is indescribable. It, I still feel a little bit of that relief, even telling the story. I didn't know where I was exactly, but I was now in the presence of someone who did, someone who knew the path and could point me in the right direction and show me a well-marked path to follow to safety. And so I began walking down that path and uh, towards the campsite, I was like three quarters of a mile off, <laughs> and as, I'm, uh, as I get back to my campsite, all the guys from my little group are gone and I can hear them out in the woods calling my name, <laughs> and I thought, oh, How embarrassing for them, because I knew where I was all the time, and I, I got back to my campsite without their help, you know, and so, so they're out calling me, but I remember as I walked that path, and it's true, I remember muttering to myself over and over again, just in time, just in time, and you know, everything God does is right on time. Have you ever thought about that? Nothing is ever happens too early. Nothing ever happens too late. It's right on time. We talked about Mary and Elizabeth, and you think of even you know, the disciples or Caesar and Herod. Same thing. God knows all of this in advance, and they are born at just the right time. Um, so, what? does this mean for us today? What can we take out of here today? What do we take out of this room back into our lives here uh, in these couple of weeks here before Christmas? You know what the turning point was for me? It was being in the presence of someone who knew the woods and who knew the way. That's what it was for me. Maybe you're saying right now, you know, much of my life kind of feels like I'm lost in the woods right now. And some of you might even be saying, like, I get you, Jeff, because what you're describing, I can relate to. I've lost my bearings in life, and the fog has set in, and I've begun to get scared. Now, imagine how foolish it would have been. I see those two dots off in the distance, right? That's help, okay, that's rescue, that is an end to being lost in the woods and the misery of that, and if you've ever been lost in the woods, you know what I mean, you know, that's an end to all of that, imagine if when I see that, I just kind of be like, no, I just turn around and just blunder back off into the dark, foggy woods. This is so tragic, but this is just what it's like when people keep God at a distance. It's One of the hardest things for me as a pastor, I was a youth pastor for like 11 years and then became a real pastor, Um, and just kidding. And uh, you know, one of the hardest things was to see teenagers and, and adults in this position, God is calling to them from the path, signaling to them, hey, over here, just no thanks. That's exactly what it's like. It's so tragic. What I want to offer you today, if you're feeling lost in the woods, is hope. There is hope. And today is just the right time. There is a God who specializes with those Lost causes, so to speak, those who are feeling lost in the woods. He is waiting on that path to meet you. And when you go to him, the fog lifts and you get some of that elusive clarity. When you go to him, he doesn't seem distant anymore. When you go to him, you don't feel alone anymore because you are living in the promise of Christmas that God is always with us, and we are never alone. And from then on, you can say, my guide through the woods is the one who created it. That's beautiful. And to those of you who maybe aren't lost in the woods today, and you know right where you are, I hope that You can also remember the promise of Christmas during this season. Maybe you know someone who is lost in the woods right now, co-worker, friend, neighbor, even close relative. Would you make it a point this season just to reach out to that person, throw them a lifeline? Would you share the hope that you have found? Would you remember how you felt? At those times in life when you were lost, and maybe you're saying like, oh yeah, when I was lost, I was really lost. I was lost for a few hours, my, my little story there, okay? I was lost for five, six hours, and that was bad enough. Maybe you're saying, oh no, I was lost a long time. Would you make it a point to move towards that person during this season and show them where they can find hope? As God, as, uh, as, God, as Doug said, um, never made that mistake. It Never, mix, never mixed them up before. Um, you know, as, as Doug said, uh, every soul is so, so valuable. Would you ask God how you might be used to bring another person onto that path of hope? Let's pray. Father, pray that you would awaken our hearts to the wonder of the meaning of Christmas, Lord. Emmanuel, that you are with us. And for anyone who has experienced Christmas in a negative way, uh, for anyone who has ever felt alone at Christmas, Lord, or at any other time, I pray for that person right now and that this message and that these and that this series of messages through the rest of this month would would uh, shine into their soul like a ray of hope. I pray that we would hold tightly to this promise of Christmas, that you are with us and that we're never alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good day.